this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about the 2022 Australian Open, which just finished up uh, with, on the women's side, Ash Barty taking the championship, and on the men's side, Rafael Nadal winning the title. Um, and I think to get to get started, um, there's a lot of well, why don't we why don't we first uh, talk about you know the finalists and maybe a couple of details from from um, each of these each of these matches each of these um, great champions and then uh, Brian and I are going to discuss some of the parallels be- between the two champions and some some themes related to sports psychology and uh, the mental side of of tennis that that emerged from, uh, from these matches. So, um, first Ash Barty, um, beat the American Danielle Collins in the final, um, in really quite a, quite a match, especially the second set where, uh, Danielle Collins was up five, one and Ash Barty was able to, um, ultimately level, level the match out and win it in a, uh, in a tiebreaker in that second set, which is, you know, quite a comeback in Nadal and Nadal's match actually quite a comeback as well. And we can, I'm sure we'll get into, uh, you know, everything that led up to this point of, you know, especially over these past couple of months and questions of, over whether he'd even be able to continue playing the sport um, with, with the injuries and COVID that he was going through. Um, but coming back from being down two sets, serving at two, three, love 40, and ultimately turning the match around and winning it in five sets, um, against Daniel Medvedev. Um, so I think as a place to start, Brian, um, why don't we start with, uh, the women's, the women's final. Um, and I, I know there's some, some great quotes that we have by, um, by Ash Barty and, um, as well as by Ben Crow, a performance coach, as well as mindset coach that has, you know, done a lot of work with her. Um, but what were some of your thoughts on, you know, on Ash Barty and on, and on the, the women's tournament? I think on Ash Barty, the, I, I noticed a, a change in her demeanor this year. I think she was really calm and collected the entire tournament, really didn't appear phased by anything uh, in past years, perhaps feeling the pressure and expectations of um, playing in Australia and, uh, and wanting to do so well at the tournament, but this year... Seemed very, like I said, calm and cool, collected, really chill about the whole thing. And it came through in her matches. I mean, other than the final, she really wasn't challenged very much. And uh, the thing, you know, that she was doing, and I feel like her slice backhand was such a big part of of her success in this tournament. And when we think of a shot like that, um, especially, you know, in the women's game, we're not as many... Uh, women players have that shot. Many of them are not necessarily used to facing that shot. It's a real difference maker. It's like, you know, um, it can really disrupt a person's rhythm very much. And I think that's something that is a, is a true advantage for, for Ash because she's a very complete player, a lot of different tools that she can use. I mean, she's got the two-hander, but she'll slice a lot and it really bites and stays low. It's a great return for her, yet she's got a great forehand, her serve is good. Um, so it just gives her so many weapons for her to disrupt things. And she just, you know, really right up until the final um, was just rolling. And then you brought up the, you know, the, the second set against Danielle Collins. And you've got to give Danielle Collins a lot of credit. Um, 
you know, she didn't have the easiest pass. She had a, a few long matches. She plays very aggressively. She, you know, you don't want to be facing her return, especially on your second serve. If you, if you don't have a strong second serve, you, you know, you're not going to win many points. I think like Iga Swiatek did not win many points on her second serve against Danielle. Um, so you got to give her a lot of credit, and as well as, um, you know, she's fighting like the entire country of Australia in that <laughs> in that final. Um, you know, and she's feisty and she can handle that. Uh, but I thought what Barty said. Um, about her approach at 1-5 was really interesting and in that, you know, she wanted to be a li- shift herself a little bit, be a little bit more aggressive, um, try some different things tactically so that, you know, if it came to a third, she'd build some momentum, right? So she, she wasn't necessarily giving up on the second, but in a way, you know, you're playing a little bit more freely when you're down 1-5 and it started to pay off. You know, that variety started to pay off a lot. And I think Danielle Collins mentioned it in her post-match speech to the crowd about, you know, Barty's slice backhand, how she wishes she had or wants to get one of those at some point and, and how that was a, a differentiating factor. So I, I think it was an interesting way to to come back from 1-5 because um, you just keep playing. You don't know what what could possibly happen? And there is, you know, we're going to talk about some of the parallels, but there's certainly a parallel between that and what Daniil Medvedev did against uh, Felix Oje Aliassim, um, and how he basically was just going to make uh, Felix work harder and harder in the end. So, um, yeah, I just thought I was just really impressed by the composure of Ash Barty. You know, in the final, especially you know, Danielle Collins getting very feisty. And, Maybe she had to do that because of the crowd, but it really wasn't until the end that you saw any sort of emotion from Barty. No, absolutely. And uh, as you mentioned, sort of the weight of Australia on her shoulders, being the first Australian to win the title in 44 years. Um, I saw some crazy statistic that I think was somewhere around 20% of the Australian public actually tuned in to watch the final, um, which, which is pretty incredible. And what's really impressive here with with Barty's performance is that, you know, considering the the weight of the moment, considering, you know, all the expectations um, and also how, you know, these these other top players, um, you know, have shown great mental toughness at other times, have struggled in similar moments, how she was able to come back from, you know, being down 5-1. And, you know, as you said, Brian, I think you bring up a great point that, when, when your back is to the wall at that moment, it can actually be easier to play freely and to hit out and not be afraid to miss because you maybe are not as afraid to lose, right? You maybe assume that you're going to be losing that set at that moment. Maybe you're trying to find your rhythm actually for the third set. So it can actually be, you know, sometimes I think when we see these comebacks, it's because somebody's able to find that rhythm and play you know, play looser, play better in that situation. And the other, the person on the other side of the net starts to tense up and you see the dynamics start to change. And I know we've talked about in the past, but it, it always takes two to tango in these situations where there's a comeback and a great change in momentum. It's, it's generally both players who, where something changes. Um, So no, it was, it was really quite a performance, quite a comeback. And I, I have been very impressed with um, Barty's humility. Um, which is definitely something we can, you know, compare to Nadal's because I think throughout his career, he's 
he has shown that every every step of the way, whether it was his rivalry with Federer, where he was always sort of deferring to Federer and saying that Federer was the stronger player, um, or you know during Nadal's, you know more recently, how there's been you know constant chatter about him or Djokovic or Federer being the greatest of all time, and he sort of always defers and says, you know, that's not not my priority. It's not really my you know, I'm not in the place to, to talk about that. So he always tends to answer things in a very humble way and also, you know, doesn't come at things with a lot of expectations, I think, especially in this tournament. But uh, we'll get to that. But I think a, a quote that I, I really liked from Barty when w- with this title now, she is the, the only the second woman in the open era after Serena Williams to have won a Grand Slam on all three surfaces, on hard courts, clay and grass. And when that was brought up, she she said, I feel very humble to be in such a select group. To be honest, I don't really feel like I belong with those champions of our sport. I'm still very much learning and trying to refine my craft and learn every single day and get better and better. It's amazing to be able to have this experience and this opportunity on three different surfaces and be really consistent across the board. Um, and then she also added, ultimately, that was one of the biggest challenges that Jim Joyce, who's her childhood coach, set out for me when I was young to be a complete player and be really consistent across all the surfaces and be able to play on all surfaces, which I think, you know, first of all, it's, it's great for a coach to have that as a goal to be able to play on different surfaces. I mean, you know, I think maybe, you know, one area that a lot of players could improve on is gaining the experience from playing on different surfaces. Um, But I, I think back to the point about humility, it just shows that, you know, she, she says, you know, despite being number one in the world, despite having now won three grand slams and, you know, being the most consistent player, at least, you know, over the last couple of years, you could say um, is, you know, she's, she feels like she's still very much learning. She's trying to refine her craft. Um, Definitely coming at it with, you know, a a growth mindset, it seems um, rather than feeling that, you know, letting the titles and the ranking get to her head and, you know, allowing her ego to grow from that, she comes at it that she's she's still very much learning. So um, I think that humility is definitely one of the factors that has allowed her to get to this point, and I think will will continue to help her as as her career goes on. The humility, as well as the you know the desire to learn, is is really important. Um, you know, famous American football coach Bill Walsh talked about how that if the environment is all about learning, the results will come. And I think that's what you're seeing with a player like like Ash Barty and uh, the idea of her being a complete player, which is true. And I and hopefully we'll see, you know, more young women trained to play, you know, more like Ash Ash Barty. Um, I think we've discussed on this show in the past how maybe there was an era where that wasn't as much the case um maybe late 70s and and for for good maybe 20 or 30 years uh many female players were just brought up with two-handed backhands giant forehands and then that's it and where prior to that during the wood wood um racket era uh, the women played exactly like the men uh, you, if you were to watch like Billie Jean King highlights, she's serving and volleying. She's got a great slice backhand, just amazingly athletic player, total, total complete game. And, and something that you really don't see very much, um, you know, on the, on the women's tour today. And I think 
Ash Barty be a great example for many young women to emulate in terms of how to play um, and, and make them more complete. You know, it makes me think of our conversation with, with Coach Bill Tim and the idea of, you know, how many years it takes to learn all those skills and then the additional years it takes to become a champion. And uh, obviously, Ash is, is figuring it out, but with her, you know, her love of learning and improving and her humility, um, who's to say how good she can get? And, uh, you know, just the way she handled the pressure in this tournament, Josh, because you're right, lots of players have faltered with some level of history on the line. But if you're not all that interested in history, perhaps that's the answer. Because uh, you can go back to sort of the way Nadal approached this tournament. Um, he really wasn't entering it to win number 21. It, it was sort of a nice afterthought or footnote for him. But ultimately, it came down to him just wanting to play the sport he loves. Absolutely. And I think I think that's a good good transition where Nadal you know, spoke, I think at, at the end of the tournament, maybe, you know, during the tournament at, at some point, just about all the struggles that he had that I don't think most people were aware of that, right. you know, he had, he had this nagging foot injury, I think since, you know, the, the middle of last year. Um, and, you know, he, he talked about even, you know, not being sure that he'd be able to continue play. And then he had COVID in December, um, which, you know, apparently sidelined him, pretty badly. So, um, it, it seemed, you know, he, he did go into Australia and won, won the warm up tournament in Melbourne, which I'm sure gave him some confidence and, you know, getting those matches under his belt, but still, I mean, considering how recently, you know, he had had COVID and how, um, you know, recently he had even, you know, thoughts of whether he'd be able to continue playing or not to come into a tournament with, you know, low expectations for yourself, just trying to, um, you know, maybe get some matches, maybe try to play your way into form to an extent, um, I, I, I think is was one of the keys for his success. I think also whether it's Barty's comeback in that second set or Nadal's, you know, comeback in the final, I think giving yourself a little bit of time and being patient and can, can do wonders. Um, I, I, I think one time, you know, something that I see at certainly the lower levels of the sport is somebody's down in a set or somebody's down in a match and they assume that it's just going to continue that way, that their, their opponent is just going to continue playing at the same level that, that nothing's going to change. And sometimes that turns into tanking um, because they, they assume that, you know, what's the point of, of sticking around here. But I think, you know, what Barty and Nadal both showed through their, through, you know, the, both of these are pretty insane comebacks is that the ability to just stick around, be patient, you know, sometimes you'll find your game and start to find your rhythm where I think that was definitely the case with Nadal where he started off the match quite tight in that first set. Um, and Medvedev was playing incredible, serving incredible, you know, hardly missed a backhand. Um, and, you know, Nadal was patient. He stuck with him and eventually was able to turn it around. But that only happens if, if you if you allow it to, if you start to tank, if you don't try your hardest, if you emotionally, mentally or emotionally let your game falter, then you don't give yourself a chance to make that sort of a comeback. I think yeah. also, yeah, yeah, sorry, what were you saying? No, go ahead, Josh, yeah. 
No, I, I was going to say the other the other point is on the other side of things, and I, I you know we can certainly say a lot of positives about Medvedev. I mean, he's become you know one of the top players in the world right now, um, and has has shown a lot of consistency, you know, especially over the last year, and is playing at a really high level. But one of the things that I noticed about him in the final was how he how his demeanor really changed. Um, where the the beginning of the match, he was a lot more calm and collected and as the match went along and maybe there was you know some some other reasons could have to do with the the heat or the you know him tiring but mentally his he started to slip as well he started um having a lot of chatter with the umpire started getting annoyed with the fans he started doing this this thing that i'm sure many of us have seen where he he'll miss a shot or make an unforced error and sort of do a sarcastic applause um as if he's applauding himself after missing a shot. Um, so, and, and as, as we've talked about in the past, when, when you're frustrated, when you're focused on something outside of your control, like the fans or like the umpire, it's going to be really hard to really stay focused on the task at hand, stay focused on that next point or your game plan or your strategy. I think we also saw this at other, you know, at other points of the tournament, certainly. Um, I think an example being the um, Shapovalov Nadal match where Shapovalov was, was letting things get, get to him as well, such as Nadal and the amount of time he was taking. But I think that's a, I think what, what I noticed in the final in terms of Medvedev's, behavior and his reaction as the match went along um, is definitely relates to some of these themes that we've talked about in terms of controlling your emotions and how, you know, you know, w- when the emotions can get to your head, that's going to ultimately prevent you for, for, I would say the vast, vast majority of players out there, that's going to prevent you from, from playing your best brand of tennis. And I think with both Shapovalov and Medvedev, in the matches that you're referring to, those things that occurred were completely predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and should be things that any player um, should have a plan for. You know, like we talked about a few episodes ago, mental contrasting. Those would be exact kinds of things you would put into your mental contrasting plan. Right? You want to w- win the match, but you, there are obviously going to be some obstacles. So, Yes, the crowd could be an obstacle. The, you know, how will you handle the fact that Nadal does take a lot of time between points? Um, maybe he will get some extra, um, well, not credit, but, you know, uh, maybe the umpire will not, you know, hold Rafa to the same standard, perhaps. Um, and so I think just a lesson for all of us is, again, let's think about some of those things that, could distract us, have distracted us in the past, and make sure we have a plan so that when it does happen, you're not distracted, like exactly as you're saying, Josh, because both players, I think, uh, suffered losses of focus in those matches, and that might have been critical. I think it certainly was uh, a factor in the final. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that in Medvedev's match with uh, Felix Oje Aliasim, he talked about how he thought during the match, well, what would Novak do? And this is actually, I think, another opportunity for Medvedev to um, be introspective here and say, okay, what would Novak do you know, to prepare for a crowd being against him? 
because it's certainly something he's had to deal with on a number of occasions. And those matches that have been, you know, kind of historic, that that Novak's been playing Roger or Rafa, he hasn't let that bother him. Like that 2019 Wimbledon final. I mean, the place was going nuts for Federer, and Novak handled it. Um, you know, I think he even said something to the the effect of like when they were cheering Roger's name. His response to that was, they're cheering my name. So I think that's something that uh, Medvedev could learn from from Novak in in that regard. So, um, yeah, I think it was a good – it was a nice highlight of what mental contrasting is and what happens when you don't do it. When you're not ready for predictable things to go wrong. I think that's a a great point because – we see as tennis players it you should be able to start picking up on patterns that emerge. Okay, I I react this way due to this situation. Um, or also I'm playing an opponent today that has a habit of doing this. Everybody knows Nadal tends to take time in between points. Um, sometimes he gets um, you know warnings or from the umpire or point penalty even. Um, so it, it shouldn't come as a surprise when, when you're facing the doll and that happens. Um, but if you let that get to you, if, if you don't have a plan, as, as you're saying, um, then that's going to ultimately, that's going to ultimately hurt your performance. And I think, you know, that, that was one of the factors, um, in that, in that five set battle between Shapovalov and, and Nadal that was, you know, ultimately, ultimately the, the deciding fact, one of the deciding factors. Um, so I, I think, you know, that that's definitely something that can be learned from. And I think, you know, Medvedev to some extent, and I know we talked about this off air and, and maybe some people who are listening may disagree, but um, I know he, he spoke in his press conference after the match about, um, and, and, you know, maybe we can link to this because I think, you know, I, I, I want to make sure we, we do it justice here, but um, you know, talked about, growing up and playing in the, the junior grand slam tournaments and, um, you know, feeling that maybe the the crowd was against him, maybe unfairly. And, um, you know, I, I think also thinking about what some, some of his behaviors and, you know, some certain comments that he's made and how that contributes to that. Um, and I, I think you bring up a good point, Brian, that knowing that the crowd, you know, when they're trying to watch, when, when there's an opportunity to watch history um, and, you know, Nadal's going for his 21st title, the crowd is going to want to have been there for that, especially somebody like Nadal, who's, you know, beloved um, as is, as is Federer. Um, You know, it's predictable that the vast majority of the crowd is going to be against you in that situation. So have you prepared, do you have a plan um, to handle that? And I think, you know, I think Medvedev will, will learn from it. Um, and I, I, you know, Medvedev also has a way of using the crowd to his advantage in a certain way, even if they are against him. I, we saw this in 2019 when Medvedev made his run all the way to the U S open finals. And, you know, the crowd was very much against him as the tournament started. And he's, you know, I, I think through his personality to a large part, he, by the end of the tournament, a lot of the crowd was, rooting for him, um, even if it wasn't the majority against Nadal. But um, I think he can, you know, figure out how he can 
continue to use, you know, use those sorts of dynamics and use his personality to get the crowd to his advantage, or even if people are against him, he can feed off that energy in a, a way that I think he has successfully in the past. Um, but I think based on his reaction after the match and um, maybe even during the match, uh, I, I question if he was able to feed off it and to, to use that energy as he has in the past. Um, but I think instead it sort of, it seemed to get in his head, especially once the match started turning around. And I think it can be easy, you know, once things start to shift and, all right, all this, first of all, you were ahead two sets. You had the advantage in the third set. And then all of a sudden things start to shift. It can be easy to not look for excuses per se, but, but certain things can, can get on your nerves more so at that point. So I think, I, I, I imagine it will be a learning experience. I, I think, you know, for his age, he's, he's quite mature. He's, he's clearly very smart. Um, I, I think he'll definitely learn it as a use it as the learning experience. And I anticipate, you know, him sticking around for a long time and whether he is um, received as more of a Djokovic figure or more of a Federer Nadal figure or his own, you know, his own type of personality and being received in his own way, I think is still very much to be, to be seen. I mean, he's still very early in his career, um, especially, you know, if he, is going to be following in, in those in the big three's footsteps. You know, you made me when you were describing you know Medvedev's reaction to this whole thing and how sometimes he uses it, sometimes he doesn't work. I think when you engage with some of these negative emotions, they can be hard to control. Uh, meaning that sometimes they can take you to a good place where you're motivated and more intense and more energized, and then other times they take you to a place where you become unfocused and uh, uh, and unable to really uh, achieve what you're trying to to do out there, and um, so there those are I think they're difficult emotions to to engage with. You don't see um, too many people successful with that. So, like you said, Medvedev had some success, but the only guys I can really think about who or think of that have had true success with that kind of approach are Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. They were able to do that um, for the most part and, and, and stay focused. Connor's better probably than anybody uh, at that. So he, he could mix it up with the crowd, uh, mix it up with his opponent, mix it up with umpires, and it seemingly never really affected him. There were times where McEnroe took it too far and maybe did, did lose focus. But it's really hard, I think, when people engage with some of those negative emotions. I hope that Medvedev can take an extreme ownership perspective on this because he certainly owns part of the responsibility. Um, no one's making him do sort of the mock clap or the you know the fake thumbs up type thing that he's doing. Um, and none of us would ever imagine like Rafael Nadal doing that. I mean, when Rafael Nadal used to play either French guys at the French Open early in his career or even when he played Federer in multiple finals, he was never the crowd favorite. But you did not see him doing engaging with these emotions. He just stayed focused on doing what he needed to do. He was just relentless. And you know, for those of us who remember those days, you know, the there was a really large Federer contingent and a small but growing Nadal contingent. 
which got bigger and bigger as as the years went along. But it, it wasn't like it was equal at first. It clearly wasn't. Um, and especially in, in places like Paris, where Federer was just totally beloved, and he should be. You know, he's a great ambassador for the game. He plays with such flair and style. And um, if it weren't for Nadal, he'd be probably the the next greatest clay court player ever uh, in the history of the game, right? So um, I think there are multiple role models for Medvedev to look at um, if you want to be able to handle these these situations. Um, you know, you brought up what he said in his press conference and how maybe the behavior of the crowd has somewhat ruined the dream of the young child tennis player that he once was. And I... I read that and I was like, you know, I hope I hope he can reflect on that in a few days or weeks that we shouldn't let the behavior of other people detract us or distract us from what we want to achieve. Um, these people in the end are not shouldn't be that important to him. Right? He should only care about his team and and the other people around him um, that that love him and uh but at the same time, like we've been saying, he's got to own how he responds to this stuff. Because um, where it goes from here, it's kind of up to him. You know, there was a very famous incident with Jimmy Connors. I believe, I want to say it was the 1978 US Open. I could be wrong on this, but he was not well liked prior to that. Um, but at that tournament, in that final, he said something to the New York crowd. About, like, you know, you may not like me very much, but I love you guys. And he was a fan favorite ever since. Um, and so, you know, there, I think it's within Medvedev's control to, to deal with the crowd and how they engage with him. Um, but also, he's got to figure out various situations when he's playing various guys in various countries uh, what the dynamic is going to be, and he's got to have a better plan than, than what he had in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as you know, as his career goes on, you know, he will have more of a contingency of of fans. Um, you know, more diehard fans. I mean, he just. I, I think it it can be easy to forget because he's you know number two player in the world right now. I think in many ways with with Djokovic out, he was the favorite. Um, going into this tournament, but he just won his first Grand Slam last fall uh, in New York, um, you know, last year. So he, you know, he's still, still, I think, figuring some of this out. Um, and you know, I, I, to in many ways, I, I think he does still need to build his, you know, his fan base and figure out what works best for him. Where I think with him, we see more of a a range. Um, of his emotions where sometimes he's, he's, you know, he'll win a match or he'll win a big point and won't react at all. And other times, you know, he'll let out more of a reaction or be more on the negative side. So I, I think he's still in a certain way, figuring out what works best for him, it, it seems. Um, but I, I think we'll be, I imagine we'll be seeing a lot more of him um, as the years go on and he'll have plenty more opportunities to, especially with, um, you know, the big three getting older and older, though it, it just seems that they, they might just continue winning uh, tournaments, uh, you know, Grand Slam tournaments. But um, I, I anticipate he'll, 
have have plenty more opportunities at at the the highest level to continue refining his craft as it relates to the mental game and and as it relates to reacting to these sorts of situations. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I I I find myself rooting more and more for him. I, I really like his game. I, I I like what he does out there. I mean, his physical game is completely. Uh, you can't copy any of that, but it's, it's amazing. Unorthodox. Yeah, to say the least, right? But it's amazing to watch what he does. Um, you can see how he interacts with the other players, that there's a ton of respect there. Um, you know, how he was with Nadal at the end of the match was fantastic. So I think um, there are no issues at all there. I think he's great with the other players. And so, yeah, if he can just figure out how to how to handle this and not let – you know, unimportant people's behaviors interfere with, you know, what he wants to achieve in his life. Uh, I think that would be great for him because I think he, um, there's, a, there's, I mean, there's just something about him. He's, he's dynamic. He's got a good personality. Like you said, he's, he's smart. He's really well-spoken. Um, yeah, really, I like watching his interviews. I like watching his game. So um, let's hope he is around for, for many years to come because the game is better with him. No doubt about it. Definitely. You know, um, perhaps we could switch a little bit to Rafa now, you know, given that this was a, an historic achievement, although that wasn't really what he was focusing on. Right. Right. No, he, he, I mean, he was asked about it um, after the match, you know, now that he has won his 21st Grand Slam title and, you know, jumps ahead of uh, Federer and Nadal. Federer and Djokovic, sorry, who are still at 20 Grand Slams. And, you know, there's this constant question over who is the greatest of all time. Um, And I think that this quote by him where he says, at this moment in history, it's true that I'm the one that I'm the one with the most. He said, of course, I would be happy to finish with the most. But for me, it's never been an obsession. Whatever happens from now with Novak, Roger or me, we all have exceeded. We all have exceeded any expectations we could have had when we were young. So. You know, I, I think this, you know, he he's he comes at it in sort of a more objective way where he's not, you know, bringing his own ego into it, his own emotions. I'm sure, you know, a part of him does want to have, you know, does want to finish his career with more titles. Certainly he gets a lot of questions about it, but he seems to really come at things from the pro- from a focus on the process, a focus on doing things right, a focus on trying to, you know, trying to master his craft, focus on coming back time after time after time after time throughout his career from injuries, from setbacks. I mean, I cannot think of any player who has dealt with as many injuries as he has and time and time again has been able to come back to the highest level. Sometimes it's been a longer absence. Sometimes it's been a shorter absence. Um, I think when you're 35, it, I'm sure it, it's tougher than when you're um, younger. To, to come back um, to, to that level. But uh, I, I think his resilience and how he doesn't seem to have too many expectations for himself, especially in this situation, yeah. considering what he'd been through with his injuries and his sickness. Um, but I, I think that, that goes a long way to performing the way that he did um, because, you know, he allows himself to, um, you know, not, not get flustered at, at different situations that come his way. And um, I think he gave himself time just as he gave himself time. He sort of bought himself time in, in that third set in order to come and turn that match around. Um, I think 
you know, he was able to sort of buy himself time by keeping his expectations low by, you know, starting small and um, winning a 250 event and then, you know, winning round by round and letting his confidence build. I like uh, his final answer in his press conference after the final. And he was asked, you know, really what were his keys to, you know, to success as a, you know, in this tournament. And uh, I'll just read the quote, love for the game, passion, positive attitude and working spirit. That's all. No. And the right people next to me helping every single day. I think that's all. And, you know, those first ones are, you can see it in him uh, because when you have sort of an existential crisis a few months prior to the event that you may not be able to play again, you're training and it's not working. So like you said, some days you could play for five minutes, some days, no minutes, some days, an hour and a half. Um, and it wasn't getting better at all. Um, and, uh, and so he, I think he felt extremely grateful to just be there and to play the game he's loved since he's been, been a young boy. And, and that really carried through. Um, he also mentioned that, you know, late in the match, that it was helpful to think about some of the other tough losses. Cause I think he's, He's mentioned this. He's had some of the toughest losses of his career at that tournament. You know, two of them in a final, but there were some other really tough losses that were in semifinals and so forth. But that that one against Novak that went almost six hours, the 2017 final against Federer when he had a lead in the fifth. And um, yeah, he's had some really tough moments there, but he almost like, all right, that, that fueled him to go through in the end. And... Um, I think you're right, Josh. I don't think there were expectations for this tournament. Simply just wanted to play. Um, and we shouldn't blow off the part where he talks about having the right people. You know, we all go through things in our lives, and it's really important that we have a team of people around us that either keep us grounded or help us through these tough times. You know, we tend to call that in, in sports psychology, you know, social support. Social support is really uh, so important when we're dealing with things like injuries or questions about our career or, or whatever. We, we need that in, uh, in, in good times and bad. And Rafa clearly has that. Um, and, you know, when going back to Medvedev, th- those are the people he should really care about and what they, they think. You know, and he had some really nice words for his team as well at the end. Um, but I think that's an important aspect of this is, is having the right people in your life, uh, for your tennis career or or whatever, whatever your professional career is, um, family, friends, coworkers, or people that you practice with or, or whatever, physio, um, all of that really matters and that, that you trust these people and that you can talk to these people about difficult things and, uh, that they have your back. And I think that's something that Rafa realizes is he's got a great team that is there 100% for him. And uh, he knows that without those people, he wouldn't have been in that position um, on that day. Yeah, and I, as it relates to his team, a lot of the people on his team are people that have been with him for a long time. Yeah, I mean, um, his uncle, 
Tony Nadal, who actually I don't think is working with him as much right now. I, I think he's actually helping out um, Felix, and I know he's very involved in Nadal's academy. But I, I, I know that a lot of the way that Nadal was raised and, you know, you know, we, we've talked about some of his qualities and his humility and his focus on the process has a lot to do with the way that he learned the sport from, from Tony. Um, and as, as you talk about the people around him, I think these people that are around him in many ways help to build, you know, the, the person that, that he is. Um, you know, I, so I, I think that that's an important point that um, he, you know, he, he's been around a lot of these people and it's a lot of people from his community too. Um, you know, other Spanish people, other people from Mallorca. Um, so, it, you know, it's people that he knows well, he trusts. And um, yeah, I, I think we can all learn from them and think about who we incorporate, you know, within our performance team um, and, and, you know, who are the type of people that we can learn from, we can grow from and are going to ultimately help us to perform at our best, but I think even more importantly, to be the best people we can be. Yeah, right. I think when you look at Rafael Nadal, you, you think of a guy who's someone of, of good character, has good virtues. Um, you know, we don't necessarily always want to put athletes up on some sort of pedestal as role models or so forth, but um, if you had to choose one, he's a pretty good one. The way he conducts himself on and off the court, there's not much you can say bad about the guy. I'm sure some people could. And whether that's based in truth or not, you know, is, is, is one thing. But, um, yeah, the way he handles himself and the humility that you mentioned, Josh, um, that's, those are all the things that have made him so great at what he's done. You know, without that sort of humility and the hard work and the, the character building that, you know, his uncle and his parents and his family and even, you know, Carlos Moyos, he's known since he was young. Uh, that all forged him into this this sort of ultimate warrior tennis player that in many ways we've never really seen before. Um, you know, I think arguments about greatest of all time are, are nice, but they're really kind of inconsequential in many ways. But um, there's no one else who consistently fights the way he fights. And... Um, you know, if you had somebody that you wanted to play for your life, it wouldn't be a bad choice for that, you know? So, uh, I was, uh, you know, really pleased to see him pull this off. And, you know, I think I said to you before we began recording, um, I've never seen him so exhausted. And I'm sure that part of that was the, not the normal training time that he would have as well as COVID in December. and just watching him manage his energy between points. Um, you know, if a game was 40 love, not running for the ball, uh, th those are things you don't normally see from him. And uh, it was just remarkable to see how he managed his energy because uh, both players, I think, were, were exhausted. I think that was a factor at the end. And um, I don't think we've mentioned this one in a while, but, you know, exhaustion, fatigue can really have an impact on a player's will to win, certainly on their their ability to focus. You can get very decision making. Yeah. Just you can be really focused on how, how tired you are. Um, yeah. So it can become a, a real uh, sort of mental breaking point when you're physically so exhausted. And I think uh, 
it was impressive the way he handled that. Um, you know, not that Medvedev handled it badly, but just like I was just impressed the way Nadal managed that that situation because it's not you don't normally see that from him. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. I think the irregular um, training could could definitely have been a factor there. Um, or the fact that he had some long matches leading up to it, yeah. you know, or the fact that he's simply a lot of, you know, he's, he's 35, almost 36 now. Um, so, and, you know, especially for a player who's relied on his speed and movement throughout his career, it's, it takes a toll. Um, so I, I think, I think those are all factors, but yeah, I, I think um, that, that anytime there's a grand slam, um, especially on the men's side where they're, they're playing best out of five sets and you have to win seven matches, it's going to take a toll. It's, it, to some extent, it's going to be a marathon for who, who you know, who, whoever ends up winning the tournament. It's going to be uh, endurance is definitely going to be a, a piece. The physical aspect is definitely going to be a piece of it. So, you know, the ability to keep it together over the course of two weeks and not let your level slip. And also, you know, as it, when it comes down to the final to, you know, conserve energy, maybe at times, which as, as you said, is not something we usually see from him. Usually um, people say he plays every point the same way. He, you can't tell if he's down 40 love or, or if it's love 40 or if it's deuce because he's playing, you know, every point as if it's his last, but we actually did see him maybe, maybe not take points off, but play certain points and maybe, take certain chances that he wouldn't normally take um, because of that exhaustion. So I think the, you know, the, the ability that he was able to fight through that and able to fight through, you know, losing those two sets, being down in the third, fighting off those break points, but also in the fifth set. I mean, he was up in the fifth, up a break, going to serve forward at, at five, three and was broken. Five, five, three or five, four, five, four, five, I think. five, four, five, four. Yep. Was broken to bring it to five all. And then it was able to, to break Medvedev right back. Um, perhaps Medvedev's exhaustion and, and physical um, ailments in that moment could have been part of it, but um, no, just, just a testament to him. And um, you know, we'll see what ends up happening when the big three all retire, but um, definitely, you know, regardless, uh, quite an achievement. Absolutely. You know, and we're pretty lucky to be tennis fans at this moment in time. Uh, and uh, yeah, these guys, you know, Novak and Roger and Rafa are getting a little bit older and, you know, maybe we're at the end. Although I, I think, you know, if Novak can figure things out, he, he has more gas in the tank maybe than the other two. But, um, you know, we, we shouldn't uh, hustle these guys into retirement. You know, we'd love to have them as long as they can get out there and, they love the sport, right? So, yeah, this is this is a fun tournament to watch these last couple of weeks. A lot of a lot of great matches. So, um, well, everybody, thank you for listening to this episode. For more, uh, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. And you can also check us out on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.